Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Our text this morning is uh, the first six verses of that chapter. As you're turning there, let's stand together. We will read those six verses and then pray for the Lord's blessing. So let's stand together. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the timelessness of your word. We thank you for the fact that your word is perfect. It is true. And by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, it is just as applicable to us as it was 2,000 years ago when this text was originally written. We pray, Father, that you would help us to approach these verses with that in mind. This has been written to us, and it has been given to us with the intent that we would live in light of it. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would help us this morning, that he would help us to understand it, to embrace the truth that it holds, and to live it for your glory. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, that is speaking His truth and then living a life that is consistent with that truth, will inevitably prick the carefully seared consciences of the ungodly around us and will draw their scorn upon us. Some have experienced that of late. If you have not experienced that before, and you are faithful to the Lord, you will. Tertullian, a, a giant of church history from the third century, said this about that kind of, of treatment. He said, it is quite true that it is our desire to suffer, but it is in the way that a soldier longs for war. Indeed, no one suffers willingly, since suffering implies fear and danger, Yet the man who objected to the conflict both fights with all his strength and once victorious, he rejoices in battle because he reaps from it glory and spoil. The day is won when the object of the struggle is gained. 
This victory of ours gives us the glory of pleasing God and the spoil of eternal life. So Peter would call us this morning to, to what we might call a warrior's resolve in suffering. A warrior's resolve in suffering. Understanding that the Lord Jesus has gone before us and understanding what awaits us because of what Jesus has suffered and because of our own road of suffering. Our, our situation as believers in 21st century America is strikingly similar to that of the believers in Asia Minor to which Peter originally wrote this letter. They and we carry a countercultural message. We, we hold and we speak and we live in a manner that says, there is only one God, creator and Lord of all things. All people are born estranged from him because they are descended from Adam and because by nature and by delight they rebel against God with every thought and every deed. All people, therefore, are rightfully objects of the Creator's righteous, eternal wrath. But as a demonstration of His great love and mercy, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live and die as a substitute on behalf of sinners. So Jesus took on flesh and lived perfectly under the law of God. He then submitted to death, even death on a cross, taking the sins of men upon himself as if those sins were his own. And three days later, he was raised from the dead so that now all those and only those who turn from their sin and trust in him, surrendering everything that they are to his lordship, they are forgiven of sin. They are given eternal life instead of eternal death in hell. That is a countercultural message, no matter what count culture you find yourself in. Man's sinful heart does not want to hear that he's estranged from God, nor condemned by God. He doesn't want to submit to anyone or anything but his own lusts. He doesn't want to be accountable to anyone or anything. So, he lashes out against the messenger with various forms of mistreatment. And so, Peter writes this letter to help us, us, understand that this mistreatment is just part and parcel of the life of an elect exile. It is a testing of our faith. And that test is, in a sense, this question, when under this kind of pressure, will we conform or will we remain faithful? So the apostle is, is pushing a message in this letter. Meet this testing of your faith by setting your hope on the coming salvation and entrusting your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And now we, we find ourselves in part three of a section regarding the elect exile's suffering. Two messages ago, back in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Peter taught that if we are objects of God's grace, there's no reason to be fearful of the ill treatment of the world because there's no ultimate eternal harm that they can do to us. He then grounded that truth in the, the message that we saw last week, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. He grounded that truth in the fact that Christ has gone before us on this road from suffering to glory. And by that, he ensured that our suffering will lead to glory. 
And so now in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the apostle instructs us as elect exiles as to the appropriate mindset regarding suffering. If these things that he's previously taught are true, then just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, we also should resolve to suffer. Suffering in this life demonstrates that we have consciously departed from passion for the things of the world and the affection of the people of the world in order to serve the living God. And so the, the first point in your notes this morning really is just the main idea of the whole text. The following points will be reasons for doing what the main point calls us to do. And that, the main point is this, that elect exiles should arm themselves with the intention to suffer. Elect exiles should arm themselves with the intention to suffer. Again, in verse 1, he writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And so he's bringing our minds back again to the Lord Jesus and his example for us. Jesus perfectly demonstrated for us that the way to glory is suffering in the flesh. That is suffering in this life. And, and we see the Lord Jesus' determination to suffer all over the place through, throughout the Gospels. You, if you're taking notes, you can write down a few references. Luke 9.51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we might think, well, maybe he didn't know what was going to happen there. Well, no, he did, because John 18, 4 and 5 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Jesus determined to suffer. John 10, verses 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We find this idea also in the epistles. Hebrews 12, 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus understood that the, the whole reason that he came to this earth was to suffer and that his suffering would lead to glory not only for himself but also for us. And I love that Peter repeatedly in this letter calls us to a sense of solidarity with the Lord Jesus in these things. Jesus has gone before us. Jesus knows the heat into which he has called us because he's done it. He knows precisely what it's like because he paved the way. And as we saw last week, his suffering ensured that ours will end in glory. And so, so Peter says, look to the Lord Jesus and arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. By that he means arm yourself with the intention to suffer. That that imperative, arm yourself. This is, this is a military word. And that is so helpful in this letter because we, we tend to think of those who suffer as victims. And Peter has called us repeatedly to, to submit to authority. And here we're being called to submit to suffering. And so because of that, we may struggle even more with this conception that those who suffer, they're just victims. But that, that imperative, arm yourself, 
being a military term, it gives the idea we're not victims in this, but rather we're, we're soldiers with a mission and we serve a kind and just master. Given the strength of that imperative, I like how the HCSB translates that phrase, way of thinking. It reads, arm yourselves also with the same resolve. Christ was resolved to suffer. And so we're called also to resolve to suffer. There's a choice being made when we follow the Lord Jesus. Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14. Jesus says this in, in the The Sermon on the Mount, he said, For the gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is what? The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who follow Christ are choosing a narrow, hard way. And we, as those who have chosen to follow Christ, we must keep making that choice, keep arming ourselves with the Lord Jesus' resolve to endure suffering. It is the way that leads to life. To arm ourselves with that intention, what does that look like on a daily basis? It's just to repeatedly resolve in our hearts, this is the way that I'm walking. As scorn comes upon us, this is my life. This this suffering This is what I want because this is what comes with Christ. And he is worth it. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, essentially, know what you're getting into. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, take up his cross and follow me. So arming ourselves with an intention to suffer means That we are saying repeatedly over and over to that calling of Jesus, I'm in. Even if this is so painful, I'm in. I'm in today, I'm in tomorrow, I'm in no matter what comes. That is the main idea that Peter is giving to us in these six verses. Arm yourself with a resolve and intention to suffer. I'm following Christ. Peter gives us a number of reasons to do this, beginning with number two in your notes. Not that exile should do this because suffering demonstrates that they have turned from sin toward God. Because suffering demonstrates they have turned from sin toward God. Let's look at the end of verse one and into verse two. He writes, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, there at the end of verse 1, it's not obvious because of the order of the words in in the the English translations. But the verb tenses indicate that, that what he's saying is that those who have made a break from sin, they will suffer. They suffer. And so if, if you suffer for doing good, it's an indication that you belong to the Lord. That you have turned from sin. And, and this, this idea is summed up by, by one of our early church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch. He, he wrote this. He said, The believing have in love the character of God the Father by Jesus Christ. By whom? If we are not in readiness to die in his suffering, his life is not in us. 
Now, we could flip that over and say that if we are willing to die in suffering, if we are willing to engage in the suffering of Christ, to participate in his sufferings, it's an indication that his life is in us. The, the decision to follow God is a decision to suffer, is a decision to live this life, not for human passions, but for God. There's a juxtaposition here that Peter gives us between the passions of man and the will of God. We formerly followed human passions, but when we repented and trusted in Christ, we turned from those things. We turned away from those toward the will of God. And you could say that verse 2 is, is really nothing more or less than a definition of functional repentance. A repentant person's life looks like verse 2. They have rejected sin so that they no longer live for human passions. They have submitted to God so that they live to do His will. Their life says, not my sinful will, but your holy will be done. Verse 3 shows that human passions as a way of life should be a thing of the past for elect exiles. So look there with me, verse 3. For the time that passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And we've seen this before, but Peter is... Peter's writing to Gentiles. These are, these are non-Jews. So what does it mean here that he, would, that he would call other people Gentiles? Well, he is appealing once again, as he has repeatedly in the letter, to Old Testament language. The Gentiles in the, in the Old Testament were those outside of God's covenant people. And so in, in this te text, this context, Gentiles are those outside of the new covenant. Peter's repeatedly applied Old Testament language reserved for Israel in the Old Testament. He's applied it to these Gentile believers, showing that in Peter's mind, and we've seen that this is the mind of all the apostles, the church is analogous to Old Testament Israel. Believing Jews and Gentiles are the one people of God. So the past is sufficient for doing what unbelievers want to do, for doing what you wanted to do before you came to know the Lord Jesus. You've already lived that life, Peter is saying. That's your former manner of life, to pick up some of Paul's language. He details for us some of what that life entailed. As if to remind us, do you remember how filthy this was? Sensuality, he, he, he uses this word that we could, we could understand as licentiousness. It's conduct that lacks all moral restraint. We could also call it self-abandonment. Just, just letting it all hang out. Do you remember that, he's saying? That's your former manner of life. Sensuality. And he uses the word passions. Passions or lusts are either desires for forbidden things or Inordinate desires for lawful things. Inordinate desires for lawful things can be ungodly. So, for, for example, desire for sexual activity outside of marriage, that would be an example of the former, a, a desire for something that's forbidden. Gluttony would be an example of the latter, an inordinate desire for something that's lawful. Sensuality, passions, and then, and then we get three words in a row, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. And there's a great deal of, of overlap in these three words. They all pertain to drunkenness and the ungodliness that often accompanies it. So the, two of those words, drunkenness and drinking parties, obviously they would be, would be similar. The one in the middle that, that the ESV translates orgies, we tend to think of that just as sexual aband, abandon. 
And that is appropriate for this Greek word, but it's the Greek word is specifically linked to drinking. Right? We might say that the, the evil of drunkenness is so destructive that Peter uses three words to communicate the seriousness of it when strictly speaking one would have sufficed. It's your former manner of life. Finally, he says lawless idolatry. There, there may be better words to capture what's translated as lawless here. I, idolatry is inherently lawless, but this word carries a further connotation of, of ab abhorrent, filthy, abominable. It's detestable. And so the, the apostle is conveying how morally repugnant this idolatry is now to the regenerate soul. Consider again that this letter that we're studying was, was written 2,000 years ago to a culture far removed from ours, and yet it would appear that from this list of human lusts, our human lusts have not really evolved over two millennia. Right? It's remarkable. If we, if we look at our own culture, if we look at our own lives prior to our conversions, we'll find much correspondence with this ancient, timeless text. Were you lacking moral restraint prior to Christ? Wouldn't you characterize our, our culture that way? Is there a better way to characterize our culture? Absolute moral self-abandon. Our culture preaches, deprive your body of nothing that it wants. That's what Peter is talking about here. Lusts, desires for forbidden things. That notion of anything forbidden is rejected today. There's nothing out of bounds. Neither is there such a thing as an inordinate desire for lawful things. You only come to see the evil of these desires after being enlightened by Christ. And we come to these, these three words that communicate drunkenness and the evils that accompany it. Could, could there be a more apt description of our society? You know, if, if you believe social media, it would appear that a large segment, segment of our population are unable to have a good time without alcohol and are even astounded at the suggestion that it's possible. These are the characteristics of the lifestyle of those dead in their trespasses and sins. They live for human passions, not for the will of God. You can't do both. You cannot do both. Peter, Peter is juxtaposing these two things. They are inherently opposed to one another. John makes this when he exhorts in his first epistle, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. You, you've done that, Peter saying. You're done with that. If... You show the evidence of following Christ, which is suffering for doing good. The former days entailed indulging the flesh. The present entails living for God, which involves suffering in the flesh. And a reason, this is remarkable as we see how he develops this. A reason for suffering for doing good, a reason that that is evidence that we are followers of Christ is because turning from that godly living, not, not participating in it, is precisely what brings the suffering upon us. 
That's why we suffer because we don't do those things. Look at verse four. He says, respect, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So t- turning from the indulgence of worldly passions is actually a major component of what brings the suffering upon the elect exile. We, we do suffer from proclaiming the, the message of Christ. If you're faithful to proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the, the world, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is separated from God. Jesus is the only way to reconcile with God. You, you'll suffer if you're faithful to that message. But Peter tells us here that a godly lifestyle, a godly lifestyle turning away from the reckless moral abandon of the culture will bring their displeasure upon you. That phrase, join them, translates a word that pictures close association, camaraderie. And it's not simply engaging in the same behavior, but also participating in that camaraderie that comes from sharing in common ungodliness. All of us know what it's like to feel that peer pressure. To feel the peer pressure to engage in a particular activity. It's not just the activity that pulls at us, right? How many people desire beer the first time they've had it. It tastes terrible, right? How many people want to suck smoke into their lungs? You don't want that. What do you want? What is it that you really want? You want the social acceptance that comes with joining the crowd. You want that togetherness. You want the sense of belonging that is connected to the revelry. We've all felt this all the way back in our adolescence, right? Is it the memories coming back? They are surprised that you wouldn't run at that, that you would not join them in that flood of debauchery. Another word for debauchery is prodigality. And for those who are biblically minded, that that just opens up another picture, doesn't it? We all know the, the, the story of the prodigal son, that parable. He takes his inheritance and he throws caution and restraint to the wind and he gives himself over to every manner of excess. That's what this debauchery is. Debauchery is hedonistic excess. And Peter characterizes it as a flood. And they're shocked that you wouldn't jump with both feet into that and join with them. Not only in the activity, but also the camaraderie that comes along with it. They're shocked. And then they're outraged because he says, then they malign you. They speak against you in such a way as to, as to harm your reputation. They talk about you. They talk to you. They, they demean you. They maligned Jesus, didn't they? He never sinned in any way. And yet, they called him a blasphemer. It's the worst thing you could be in Jewish culture. Called him a blasphemer. Said he violates the Sabbath. He's encouraging our people to revolt against Caesar. They maligned Jesus. The truth is that Jesus, his searing holiness, pricked their carefully seared consciences in such a way that they couldn't stand it. And the same happens today with those who are faithful to that Jesus. When a godly believer speaks the truth and then lives the truth, his or her life is a constant reminder of the guilt and doom awaiting the unrepentant. And those unrepentant then attack the godly so as to preserve their guilty consciences. 
They want to stay inoculated from conviction. We typically assume that the suffering endured by believers in the New Testament was, was all of the variety that, that, that Paul outlines for us of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. And so we would, we would only call persecution or real persecution and things like beatings of all kinds and stonings, imprisonment, hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. We would say, well, that, that's, that's true persecution and suffering. And yet it appears from this letter that the believers to which Peter is writing, these believers in Asia Minor, they were actually facing something much closer to what we are facing in modern day America. Their persecution was not yet physical. It was not yet governmental, but rather it was, it appears mainly societal and familial scorn. The society around them was surprised and then outraged, outraged at their refusal to participate in the revelry that was just a normal part of being a Greco-Roman citizen. So th- theirs, theirs was a pervasively idolatrous society. Christians refused to participate in that. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ancient historian named Tacitus who described how subversive Christians were. And he said of them that they had a hatred for the human race. Why would that culture think that Christians hated the human race? Because that, 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 that culture was so deeply idolatrous. It was woven into every part of society. It was in the home. It was in the marketplace. It was in the government. Participation in these public festivals, which included worshiping false gods, worshiping the, the, the emperor, doing all of that was considered part of being a good citizen. Much of that revelry in, involved this ungodly drunkenness and sexual immorality. Christians refused to do that. And so they were thought of as haters of mankind. This is what all people do. This is what it means to be a good, a good citizen. You don't want to do these things. You hate us. So the Christians were, were outcasts. They were maligned. This is not at all unlike modern day treatment of believers. We're accused of hatred when we don't join in the culture celebration of gender confusion and the normalization of homosexuality. We're, we're accused of, of hating women when we stand up for the unborn. We are closed-minded at best and dangerous at worst when we say there's only one truth in life, and that is Jesus Christ. Peter seems to be, in this letter, preparing his, his readers for something worse. In verse 12 of, of this chapter, he writes, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange were happening to you. At the time he writes it, it appears that they're suffering mainly social ostracism. Something worse is on the horizon. It ought not surprise us that a similar future awaits us. And so the imperative that he gives to to the believers in Asia Minor is an imperative that we need right now Arm yourself with the intention to suffer. That is part, that's part of choosing to turn away from the passions of the world and serve God. Turning away from that stuff is part of what will bring suffering upon you. Therefore, suffering this kind of social defamation is an indication that you belong to him. If, if you didn't, you would be willing to join him. The only reason anyone would endure the poor treatment that believers endure today for being faithful witnesses to the gospel and faithful examples of biblical morality is because they actually belong to God and have been transformed by Him. Listen, 
nominal belief dies a quick death under the pressure of any manner of mistreatment. So arm yourself, arm yourself, because suffering demonstrates you have turned from sin to serve God. This is a wonderful thing. Another reason elect exiles should arm themselves with the intention to suffer is because those who live for debauchery will be condemned. Those who live for debauchery will be condemned. Verse 5 reads, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is those who have passed and those who are still alive. That, that he mentions that God, God is ready to judge those who are still alive gives us a sense of immediacy to this judgment. This judgment is imminent. And they will give an account not only for maligning us, but for living in these human passions that Peter has outlined for us. They'll be called to account for the full breadth of their rebellion against God. This is intended to be a comfort to believers who feel like outsiders in, in their suffering. Outsiders, while those who engage in this flood of debauchery, they are the proverbial insiders. They're enjoying comfort and pleasure. And Peter once again brings to us this eschatological reality, this end times reality. He's saying to us, look, you, you've got to think not just about the here and now, but think about the last day. These people who are enjoying this flood of debauchery, they are going to be judged by God on the last day. And this is at one and the same time a reminder that there will be justice for those who persecute the church and a call to all of us to gratefulness that we have been redeemed from that same eternity. It, it, it does appear at times in this world that the unbeliever who wrongs the people of God is unfettered in his reaping the pleasures of the world. The Psalms capture that idea over and over again. One in particular is Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I want to read a few verses from this. Psalm 73, beginning of verse 3, reads, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as the garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Later in the psalm, the psalmist details then the discernment that the Lord gave him regarding these wicked people who seem to be getting away with everything. He says this beginning of verse 18. Truly, speaking to the Lord, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Evildoers will not have the last word. And we do not want to be among them. Neither should we worry that they will receive no justice. We should arm ourselves with the intention to suffer, knowing that those who follow not the narrow hard path, but the wide easy path, they'll be judged. We, we don't want that road. Finally, Peter teaches that elect exiles should 
should arm themselves with the intent to suffer because those who suffer for doing good will be raised eternally. Those who suffer for doing good will be raised eternally. Look with me at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That beginning, that beginning clause, for this is why the gospel was preached. This doesn't refer back up to the previous part of the passage, but it refers to what comes next. We, we could rephrase this verse as a question and answer to get at the sense of what he's saying. Why was the gospel preached to those who are dead? Here's the reason. So that, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is, this is another verse in this, in this letter of 1 Peter that has confused quite a few people and has spawned a wide array of interpretations. If we, if we look at the whole verse together in context and if we, if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, it's really not that difficult to understand. The dead that he's talking about must be believers because he writes that the gospel was preached to them so that they might live in the Spirit. That is, that they might have spiritual life. But they are dead, so that might pose a a problem. They're dead. Was the gospel preached to them after they died, so that they became believers after death? That's an easy one to handle too. That's impossible, because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 teaches us that it's appointed to man to die once, then comes what? Then comes judgment. You die, then you are judged. The context also answers that question. Is it possible that this is preaching unto salvation after death? The context answers that for us because Peter has spent this letter essentially instructing believers regarding how to persevere in the faith, making it quite plain that to not do so would be eternally devastating. One must persevere in the faith in this life in order to enter eternal life. It would, be complete, it would completely undo that message for Peter to then te- teach, hey, th- there is the second chance after you die. That, that would mean that there's no reason to persevere. And more, more pertinent to, to our text this morning, there's no reason to prepare yourself to suffer. Enjoy all of those, those hedonistic pleasures that he's just outlined for us. You can indulge in those things and then convert after you die. No, It makes most sense to understand that Peter is referring to believers who were converted, but who have now died. That is, he's he's referring to the dead in Christ. And that is why the HCSB renders this phrase, for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. To those who are now dead. The HCSB does such a great job with the rest of this verse. I'm going to read it to you, okay? And it's going to help me to save a lot of time here, all right? This is the rest of that verse in the HCSB. So that, although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. Let me read that again. So that, although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God in the spiritual realm. That's a great way to understand this text. The the gospel preached to us and received in faith means that we receive the scorn of this world for our association with Jesus Christ, but we will live eternally with Him. 
in this life for our faithfulness to the Lord, the world renders judgment against us in a number of ways. We're scorned, we're maligned, condemned as haters. You know, with the, with the exception of the unborn, there, there is no other group toward whom it is more socially acceptable to heap abuse than Christians. It, it is fashionable to speak poorly of Christians, to discriminate against them, to call them hateful. You, you don't ever hear these things said about Muslims. What would happen if you did? What would happen if people did talk about it? Nobody knows because we're all afraid to do it. The gospel has made it so that our suffering ends at the grave. Whereas for our persecutors, suffering only infinitely intensifies at the grave. And that eternal suffering is, is what we deserved. It's what we deserved. Why isn't it ours? Here's, here's what Paul writes about that in Titus 3. He says, But when the goodness, loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy. By the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. The gospel came to you so that suffering would not be the last word. When we suffer, when we suffer, it means that the gospel is going forth. It is proof that the gospel is going forth. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote about that. He said, whenever the true message of the cross is abolished, the anger of hypocrites and heretics ceases and all things are in peace. This is a sure token that the devil is guarding the entry to the house and that the pure doctrine of God's word has been taken away. The church then is in the best state when Satan assaileth it on every side, both with subtle slights and outright violence. And likewise, it is in the worst state when it is most at peace. That, that we suffer for doing good indicates that the gospel is going forth and that we are his. And God, in his kindness, has allowed us the privilege of participating in that eternal work. Philippians 1.29 reads, It has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. Not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering. Suffering is here. It is here. It is intensifying. But Christ has gone before us. Let us then adopt His resolve and follow him in it. Let's pray together. Father, some of us are here this morning having experienced the scorn of others of late. 
Everyone else who follows you in faithfulness will suffer it. So we pray for your grace, Father, for, for all of us that we would arm ourselves with the resolve of Jesus Christ himself to suffer, to suffer. Living no longer for the passions of the world, but living for your will, to do your will alone, just like Jesus himself. Lord, make it, make it our food to do the will of our Father. We pray that these things would work themselves into our hearts and that even through the, the fire, the heat, the pain of, of the world's displeasure and scorn, mistreatment, persecution, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus and think that he has, he has not called us to some place where he has not gone before us and that we would be mindful of the fact that he has promised us that he will always be with us. We thank you, Father, that just as he has gone to glory, so also will we. So we pray that you'll help us to endure, that we will suffer well, that we will be godly toward those who cause our suffering, that your name might be, be proclaimed even further. Father, if there are those in the room who do not know the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring conviction upon them right now, that they would feel the weight of their sin. That they, would, that they would feel the, the heat of hell. That they would understand the doom that is theirs outside of Christ and that He is the only hope. We pray that you would help them to see the beauty of this Jesus who has suffered your wrath on behalf of men. We pray that they would repent and believe today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.